So, okay. Listen. Wait. <laughs> listen. Listen. Shut up. Everybody listening, shut up. Not you. Listeners should shut up. Um, as everyone who's listened to all of my shows all the time knows, me and my uh, senior correspondent, Albert Ching, were talking last week about the Entourage movie before we even knew that the boys from the Raj had been booked on Raw. And uh, we were very excited about that. And I, I got thinking about Ari Gold, one of the great characters in television, recent, very recent, incredibly recent history. And he's always making deals, swearing at people, being a homophobe, not paying for his actions ever, never facing consequences, and failing upward. And the two things I wanted to take from Ari Gold in that moment I was thinking about him were one, failing upward, and two, deals. Always making deals, shifting things around, contracts, roles, who's going to get the part, who's signed a big negotiation at the negotiating table, lawyers, legal, Fuck, Lloyd, ah, smash telephone. So, after some complicated legal wrangling and machinations of the court systems, the Peter Principle is in effect in a big way as I accidentally, uh, as the primary shareholder of Justin Shapiro Show uh, LLC, <laughs> ended up, oops, with the rights to the intellectual property of Alan Cunahan, my erstwhile boss's uh, podcast uh, version he does with me and uh, Todd Martin, which we have done over a few years. Todd Martin being a journalist of uh, some websites which change uh, every so often. But So I uh, have done all of these shows in the history of this podcast queue have been me with my dumb friends, and I get to boss them around and be like, hey, hey, listen, let's talk now. Now... I'm actually hosting a show, and I'm very nervous because it's two of my superiors. One is Alan, my boss, and the other is Todd, who uh, I've been uh, his understudy at the Observer website since 2003, where he was like, I got raw, kid. You take heat. And uh, I did take a lot of heat for that and still do. So uh, finally, Todd's gone. I'm ready to ascend to the top of... uh, the charts here, and then whoop, Todd's back. They said you got to do the shows with Alan and Todd. You're responsible for them now. If you don't, you lose the rights to them, like uh, the, the Fantastic Four movies. So got to rush one out. I think. What do we do? Hall of Fame shows in WWE year in review, Alan, and now I have to host them literally on this website bandwidth style. Correct? Can uh, you confirm that? I'll answer your question with an affirmative, but I'm not happy about doing it because I'm still. Taken aback and offended that you would call my good friend Matt Feuerstein dummy. He, uh, you and him recently sat down for an, an intimate four-hour, twenty-five-minute conversation, right? I believe it went, but that's behind a paywall, or is it free? It was free. It was hey. free. Yeah, it was. It was so good. I had to make it free. Um, but um, what I was gonna say was, uh, I want to congratulate you both, um, Todd. I want to congratulate you on the move. I want Todd, nine magical letters that I just just recently wrote in an email, or not an email, a uh, promotional discount a box, a bar, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was able to get PW Torch for half price, as Todd is now there, and I am now there listening to Todd, which I spent a good portion of today doing. I listened to Todd shows from last week, and most of Todd shows from this week, so... Quite frankly, I've heard enough Todd for one day, and Todd, uh, 
I'd prefer if, uh, if you refrain from talking for most of this call. I've heard everything you have to say. Uh, but, Justin, I want to congratulate hey. you, um, you not only on, uh, on uh, the fine job you're doing so far hosting this show, but also... The pool's neck of shirt. <laughs> but also on a fabulous cake and a fabulous <laughs> cake story. Cake story. Um, thank you so much. Thank you both for the Facebook likes I got for that. And uh, I'll have to do something to make it publicly available because ain't nobody getting behind my Facebook privacy settings <laughs> to know what you're talking about. Do you, I'll tell you real quick. Again, I know we have a finite amount of time um, to really get into the meat of it, but uh, it was, I made a. I was in a cake decorating contest for real people who do that well and i entered a cake to compete against them and don't consider me a monster because they got 30 dollars entry fee for god's sakes uh to the oh, midwife center it. of pittsburgh but yeah so they build those tall decorative take cakes out of uh you know garbage and weird in- inedible ingredients and i said Oh, I'll see to that. Not the same, and I'm. I guess the pictures should tell the tale. But I made a, I made a half baked cake in honor of the film Half Baked because it was cinematic uh, themed. So thank, thank you, Alan. Should you spoil what the main feature of this half baked cake was? It's uh was a cake, and I baked it for half the time, and then I jammed a VHS box. <laughs> Uh, of the film half-baked into it <laughs> left it in the pan and then I submitted it where real judges and real people in nice clothes had to look at it and evaluate it. Did I win? Oh, you That's going to be a cliffhanger, yeah. But I was, uh, so... You won you in so many ways. I did. Um, it was important to me. It was uh, to get out there. to get. I'm just a humble... Uh, you know, I was going to say pie maker, but it's not that. What is the cake baker? And uh, I'm just expressing myself through food, um, like uh, the hastily tacked on character development of the Kristen Wiig character in Bridesmaids, or uh, the non-Julia child in uh, Julia and Julia. We're basically all the same. Uh, Todd, hey, so yeah, I, we didn't, I should have gotten you, because the people I think are coming for you because you're very hot right now uh you've always been a draw and now you've maximized that uh drawing power uh window in a big way promo codes all of that uh while you are a mercenary i am happy to uh uh make you be here so thank you (laughs) oh man uh so so first justin's intro started with so much nervous energy that it made me literally very nervous. I was getting uh-huh. very nervous <laughs> sitting here. Okay, and then I'll I got right there. Alan's thing, and I was starting to feel embarrassed. And then Justin went into the cake thing, and I literally had to do something cake that I, I've never done before while recording podcasts, which I had to mute my microphone because I began <laughs> laughing too hard. Um, uh-huh. that I was worried it was going to distract from what you were saying. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I'm here. Yep, there's. Uh, I don't see anything that's changed between now and the previous shows we've done. No, 
No. Other than your apparent Sisyphusian or whatever the fuck that's pronounced fate to record endless audio with devil's advocates until your dying day. That's just your, your lot in life. So, enjoy. <laughs> I, I, did enjoy I did enjoy Wade's high spot this week of uh, when you had your initial disagreement with him and he fired you on air. Boom. <laughs> that yeah, was fantastic. Let me remind you both, you're on thin ice this whole time. If I feel like it, I'm going to pull the plug. And then the rights will revert back to Fox uh, for, for the What did you initial are my, is there a just Todd to please? What did you brand us as, Alan? When um, we did it behind, behind the old paywall. It was just always a different title. There was never a specific overall themed uh, name, which you are welcome to come up with. J-Mart. <laughs> Attention J-Mart shoppers. <laughs> Does that work for you? What the, is, is J-Mart like a different version of Kmart? Is it a Jewish Kmart? Yeah. That was a it was a combination of some of the letters and syllables in our names and uh so okay. But now I would have to reinsert you in cuz my name is taken and you have to be represented somehow. Hmm. I'll work on that in post. Sorry. So <laughs> the shows we used to do can be retrofitted as attention J-Mart shoppers. Please. <laughs> oh, uh, can I? Yeah, I guess. Can you yeah. go back into the uh, iTunes tag, whatever that thing editor is called? I only know how to break the iTunes feed. I don't know how to do anything <laughs> else with it. Okay. All right. Well, my uh, punk style prank of the fake show we were doing is over, and now we will begin the real one <laughs> starting now. <laughs> Flop sweat, flop sweat. Okay, we were watching that NXT R Eva Lake over whatever. What's it? Any? And we were. It was cool when Simone Joe came out at the end, and uh, we said, "Hey, apropos of little related to the three of us, isn't it neat when one person works in one place and then goes, surprise, I'm here now." So we wanted to talk about. Be with jazz hands. Yeah, that's right. People jumping promotionally from one place to another it's it's interesting in wrestling and uh it, it was kind of a bygone era that Samoa Joe resuscitated just Joe no Samoa Joe just Joe I think never ended up anywhere else just Joe worked everywhere according to word in the back he did right he worked here in Ireland I'm pretty sure a few times Ooh. um but uh yeah Wait. it was it was 
hold, hold on a second. Like, I, I'm sorry. I feel like a real dummy here. So mm-hmm. the, the, the theme of the show was a tie mm-hmm. into that, which makes perfect sense, but didn't hit me until you just mentioned it. Um, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Everything ties together. This is, uh, it's called world building. <laughs> um, so when we had our, uh, where we did like four or seven hours of the production meeting, uh, scripting this and storyboarding it. So we, we kind of figured we'd stick to, uh, the contemporary times of our lifespans, Alan birthday coming up, feeling his own mortality. Um, I think jumping wrestlers, jumping, let me define that as one wrestler working somewhere and then showing up somewhere else. So in the territory, oh, God times, damn it. I was, what I, I was. I had all these notes prepared about Kofi Kingston and Doug Furness. You're thinking of people just jumping straight <laughs> in the air? Yeah. You're talking about their verts? I'll, I'll make do. I can. But by God, I had some good points to make about Kofi Kingston. So we'll have to do another show another time. Alan, if you don't get on message, I'm going to lose the rights to the show. <laughs> There's a message thing going around. Hang on. And the end of the fake second show we did to warm up is over and uh, <clears throat> beginning. So in the territory times, wrestlers were uh, under the umbrella of some sort of, uh, I guess you would call it an alliance of national wrestling. So their <laughs> transience was sort of built into the system. So why we want to talk about jumping is uh, more stuck to a time when there were two national companies with national television because that's when those national audiences could be like, hey, what? How did he get here? And why? And what will be the result of this? Um, I think Vince McMahon Kennedy Jr.'s <laughs> national expansion uh, had had some jumps, but that wasn't wasn't quite what we're here for because that was more of like a, a, an invasion of the body snatchers things where people just slowly disappeared and then popped up on Titan television. And we're, uh, so... I think we're starting in just slightly beyond that. Although, Todd, I, for, I'll finally say something salient, real, and let you t- make a, a point like a human being instead of this clown car in the circus. Uh, you pointed out that uh, the concept of these jump and hop and skip arounds started more formally maybe in the 80s in people if for working for Antonio Noki and Giant Baba and and the Farners over there. So with my apologies for everything that has preceded it, would you like to say how that is a thing that is like the other things? <laughs> yeah, so so okay, so it it, it it an introduction here for people who may be very confused. Um and I hope they aren't, but it, it, I think it's a possibility at this point. Um so yeah, so so Alan and, and Justin and I, for people who don't know who we are, um are, are occasionally uh would, would occasionally do shows together on the DKP on WrestlingObserver.com and we would talk about various subjects and it was fun and I wanted to continue doing it. Um I've been writing for Wrestling Observer for a while. I've now joined Pro Wrestling Torch, but I wanted to do something with you guys, um, principally because we always would do Hall of, Fa- Hall of Fame shows. It was a lot of fun, and these occasional sort of topics. So I said, let's go on. Let's let's go ahead and, and do one of these shows. So here we are. Subject of the day, as uh, Justin alluded to, is jumps, because I love 
one of my favorite things about wrestling for years and years was jumps from promotion to promotion. Um, you know, for a lot of the reasons, Justin, Justin, you mentioned, like it, it was just sort of fun. You'd have this guy that you knew from one promotion. He'd be jumping to another promotion. And it was like, look at the world of possibilities right now. You know, the guy that was, you know, sort of a jobber in one promotion can be a big deal. He can say different things. His character can go in a completely different way. He can wrestle with all these new guys. It's frequently unexpected. You're not expecting it. Um, it would just would really open things up, you know, not, not only for sort of the big ones, you know, like Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and Chris Jericho, but also for, you know, lesser guys. You know, there are all sorts of little jumps where I sort of remember them fondly for one reason or another because they were just sort of fun little different things. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's uh, sort of the, the, the topic um, uh, that we're hitting. And, yeah, when, when we were talking about it, one of the things that I thought was fun about the topic um, when you when you proposed it was that it, it does sort of neatly line up with um, our general interest, our, our times of interest as fans at the mo- you know, when we've been watching wrestling the most, um, in that it very much was sort of a product of a, a national wrestling scene with a few competitors. Because, you know, back in the territory days, there were so many promotions that when one guy was jumping to another promotion, it wasn't like... Uh, it, it wasn't like the idea was like, wow, the guy from, you know, world class just showed up in Mid-South because, you know, the television shows weren't necessarily, you know, available to the same people. You know, it wasn't like the people knew who these people were. It was just we're introducing a new guy. Whereas, you know, once once WCW and, and uh, WWF were both national properties and ECW as well, it became more of a thing where, oh, here's the guy from the other national show showing up. Everybody knows who this is, and it's sort of a a change of the landscape. And that goes to your question, um, Justin, which is sort of the the, – we talked about in email, which is um, you raised in in, – when you were sort of made like a little list of things that we could talk about, um, the the 80s, and you referred to Japan. And I said, yeah, you know, it really was sort of a Japanese thing before it was an American thing because – um, back in Japan, you had, you know, all Japan and New Japan were the dominant companies, just like in the U.S., WF and WCW became the dominant properties. And everybody who was a fan of one generally knew the other, even if they were more of a fan of one same than the market. other. Um, say that again? They were in the same market, battling yeah. for the, the, to run the same venues, in some ways battling for the same fans, but there were there was a separation in fan bases. Yeah, so uh, uh, absolutely. And so you had when you had, you know, it was mostly foreigners, you know, like the Funks, Abdullah the Butcher, um, Bruiser Brody, guys like that. Dan Hansen. Um, yeah, that, that the, were. The Hansen, you've read the Hansen book, haven't you, Todd? Um, yes, I thought it was terrific. So I, I thought that was the most interesting thing in the book by far. The, 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 the detail he went into on everything. That led up to that jump and like the covert meetings in in airports and stuff with with um with Baba and and Terry Funk would like kind of brokered the deal and the detail he went into on that just the level of of weight that he put on the decision and the uh, the covertness of it all I just found fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I thought so too. That was some of the most interesting stuff there. Um, because it was, you know, the, the stakes were really high and nobody wanted to sort of, you know, know what was going on. So it was very covert and it was very, you know, high stakes. So it was mostly foreigners going back and forth, but you did occasionally have the natives, you know, Ricky Choshu probably being the, the most famous one. But yeah, that was sort of the, um, 
the the early start of the whole thing. And I remember in one of the segments I was doing on on the uh, on the Observer, I remember reading for the first time Dave's description of Bruiser Brody in one of his jumps, and it was just this gigantic dramatic thing. He showed up with like a I forget you know like a rose in his mouth, and there was a big flash you know a flashlight down on him, a spotlight rather, <laughs> a flashlight. That's not quite as uh, spectacular, but yeah, you know it was a it was a big deal. Um, you know when he jumped from one end to another. So I think that was sort of. Um, you know, one of the early examples of sort of what we're talking about um, that became, you know, more prominent later on. Ellen, you're a little bit younger than us, but we're all wise veterans. Also, you get foreign TV. How does that work? Ellen, what was it like? What be jumps mean to you, Alan? Question? <laughs> okay, so when the height of the kind of North American WCW WF Monday Night Wars jumping was no, going on. Not those kind of jumps. <laughs> I'm confused. Um, what, Nobody when... cares about Joey Mags, Alan. <laughs> um, oh, I, I wasn't even trying to be funny there. Let me make my point. Um, when the Monday Night Wars were, when we were in the throes of the Monday Night Wars, how do you like that? No! <laughs> not taking a person and heaving them into the air. <laughs> Issue um, contracts, salaries, <laughs> employers. All right, I got it. I got it. I'm good. Um, I was. I didn't get WCW then, so to me, it, it wasn't. Now, do you mean? Do you mean you didn't understand it, <laughs> or you couldn't watch it? <laughs> I could. I couldn't watch it. The the gap that we had on WCW was from about '93, early '94, to. Well, really, I ne- never got it back. I I started following it myself personally through magazines and the revenge video game uh, in like '99, I'd say '98, '99. But um, missed a good few years there. Where really on that side of things, I didn't know what was happening. So um, like Hall and Nash left, they kind of just went into the abyss for me um, until like I read about it a, a bit years later. But um, where where I kind of as a kid. Where, where the promotional jumps hit me were where I'd be watching. So we we got WCW up to 93, as I said, and there were certain guys, um, Dustin Rhodes being a, a prime example, that I, I would I'd watch these guys and I kind of saw them on WCW and I was never like super like hardcore WCW fan. I'd, I'd watch it occasionally and it was like the other wrestling, whereas WF, like I was all in on that. Like Bret Hart, the hero, all this kind of stuff. Not Chris Hero. I'm saying Bret Hart was my hero. <laughs> but uh, the, um, so I'd have like a passing kind of knowledge of what I'd seen in WCW, and then like so it comes like '95 and Goldust shows up in WWF, and I'm like, this guy. I couldn't shake this kind of. I, I recognize this guy from just the way he moves. There's something about this guy, and it was probably like six months into Goldust that I was like. Oh my God, that's that's the guy from WCW, Dustin Rhodes. I remember him, and then uh, Steve Austin coming in as the ringmaster was another kind of good example of that. I it, even with that, it took me a minute before I actually realized it was Steve Austin. So, um, uh, I I think like the first time that there was a promotional jump that I was aware, sort of tangibly aware of a guy and the work he was doing in one place, and 
was, was like anticipating him coming to another place was Jericho in 99. So that was the first one where I was really like, oh my God, this big promotional jump is happening. And like, I hadn't seen Jericho like actually in the, the, the in, in action in, on, on tape, but I, I knew all about him from, from the magazines, from, from, Again, the video game, stuff like that. So the idea of this WCW guy coming into WF, big deal to me. Gotcha, boss. With your blessing, then, would you still be all right if we discussed some of the jumps circa oh, yeah, 1988 sure. to 92? Absolutely, go for it. Because, I mean, like, I, obviously, in hindsight, I've, I've, I know a lot about these things and, uh, and would have seen a lot of the stuff back. But uh, live actually experiencing it as it's happening um, wouldn't have the same uh, level of knowledge. But let's go with whatever. I'm good. I wanted your verbal consent before I segued, which I will now do. Thank you. Um, right, so uh, I think... We said we're going to do it in the uh, post-Vince expansion era because I see that all the acquisitions WWF made then were definitely guys jumping from their promotion, but it was such an assimilation of like all these dying worlds. I think what we really start to see the precursors of what we're talking about came um, because even... Like, nobody from WWF then, because it was so successful, it was Camelot, you rarely saw them then jumping to Crockett slash Turner. There's the stories of Roddy Piper and other people um, trying to negotiate with them, uh, even just to uh, increase their uh, contracts with WWF, and getting such unrealistic offers that it, it never even became a consideration. So... What you have then is a series of NWA stars who, over those couple, two, three years, jump to WWF. I would. Who came first, Barry Windham or the Brainbusters? Brainbusters. I'm, okay, I'm so sure. bra- yeah, so you think about the context changing. I don't know if there's even a, a weirder reality jump than the Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard from the Southern Horsemen, Blood and Guts. Uh, rubbing people's faces in the parking lot into the bright colored cartoon world of WWF. Can I make that even weirder weirder for you? Do it. Um, so plug for a podcast I listened to this week. The um, uh, Is this a segment of Pod on Pod? <laughs> it's a segment of Pod on Pod. The Exile on Bad Street podcast hosted by Chris Elner with our with our friends David Dixonspan and Dylan Hales. Those guys uh, discussed the like, downfall of of the Crockett um uh, the Crockett promotion to the eighty eight eighty nine. Um, and uh, one of the things they, they talked about was the Brainbusters jump. And one of the things that initiated that was at the uh, I believe it was the. Correct me if I'm saying this wrong. The NAFCA or NAMCA convention, the one for like the syndication of or all the syndicated TV um, shows. Um, so there was obviously WCW or NWA people there and WF people there. And uh, Aaron Anderson went for lunch with Vince McMahon, NAFCA convention, and uh, a, a, a lunch that I would love to have been at the table beside because. I can only imagine what lunch with Arn Anderson and Vince McMahon would have been like. Vince had a rap, I'm sure. 
Do you think raps time to achieve their full potential in 1988? I can't. I can't envision Vince rapping much. I don't see him as much of a rapper. More of a. Uh, um, I don't know. Maybe he could have. That's why he was so impressed by Oscar in the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was Oscar's skills, Justin. Ah, excuse me. You, you go easy talking about Oscar. You'll get yourself in trouble again. No, 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 no. That beef in the rap is over. Um, yeah, I because uh, Flair and Wyndham were left as the two horsemen, and then they were like, that's how they become um, incorporated by a Japanese entity, right? Because Tully and Arn left, and then yeah, Horsemen stopped. Tully and Arn had started feuding with the Midnight Express, and that was kind of considered a big dream tag team feud, and then they left, and then it ended up with uh, Flair and Wyndham. Uh, they it was one of the class shows I want to say it was main evented by Flair and Wyndham against um, Steve Austin talked about this match on his podcast uh, recently Flair and Wyndham against the the Midnight's and that was a, a really good match with a kind of shitty finish. So you got them. They were called Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. Perhaps they were called the Horsemen collectively. I don't know what their Wikipedia entry on their tag title reign says, but. I think it's the first example, although maybe one of the more successful ones, of WWF, WWF-izing uh, these kind of we-wrestle-type men-in-trunks characters <laughs> from WCW, because now they they more or less stayed themselves, but they were in the Heenan family, and they were Bobby Heenan was Bobby the Brain, and so they were brain busters. And then they just wrestled tag matches against the Rockers, won the tag titles, all in all pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the thing about about Arn and, and Tully was I think it really showed that Vince had a lot of respect for them because that was definitely during a period when, you know, they'd, you know, they brought in new guys and they'd, they'd dress them up and, you know, give them goofy gimmicks or whatnot, particularly if they did make um, their name in, in, in another place. But with him, you know, he, very, he was very true to what they've been doing beforehand, even though it didn't necessarily fit as well with what he was doing. So, I mean, yeah, I think it speaks to Arn and... Uh, you know, Arnett Tully having a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of respect there. Although, I mean, this was still the period that, um, because one, um, Vince tended to, 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 particularly during this, this period, you know, pretend that other people weren't out there. Whereas later, while they still kind of pretended, they didn't pretend as much. So it was sort of, you know, you'd introduce new characters, but it wasn't like, hey, look at these guys that were somewhere else. Um, and sort of bringing attention to that, like they would um, with Flair when he showed up with NWA title a few years um, a few years later. So it's still sort of um, you know a little bit earlier, a little bit different in terms of what we're talking about. And also the other the other thing about that was that you know this was still during the the syndication tapings period. So you know you just bring guys in for tapings and have them tape a bunch of stuff, as opposed to sort of a, a weekly primetime television show being the primary focus. And so once, you know, someone showed up on that, it was like, okay, you know, it's on here. You know, the syndication deal was more, you know, here come the new guys and they'll come out there and they'll win a match and they'll, you know, cut a pre-tape promo. The irony of uh, Arn and Tully's departure, I think, ties into all this was, it was so much Dusty related, Dusty Rhodes first name basis and so everything you said Todd about respect for (laughs) Arn and Tully and no hard feelings and kind of giving them a decent shot uh, was not replicated when Dusty Rhodes who had sort of driven uh, Arn and Tully out the door 
himself was then fired and showed up hat in hand. Uh, and it was a like uh, the, the um, ball cap that a plumber would wear backwards as a working man uh, in World Wrestling Federation. And he very much, they took... Uh, you'll see what these guys like. In WCW, they had a nickname. And then that nickname becomes <laughs> literalized. The American Dream Dusty Rhodes became... He had a lot of occupations, right? They were all menial, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that uh, he he showed up. What what can you say about Dusty Rhodes? I guess the music jumps out to me, but beyond that, yeah, my yeah, <laughs> ellipses is my hosting throw to anybody. <laughs> you want to go ahead, Alan? Um, Dusty. Like my first exposure to Dusty was as the the polka dots. I was probably. I'd say it was Royal Rumble. Was there a Royal Rumble in Miami? Wasn't that one of the early 90s Royal Rumbles? Maybe 91? Yeah, I think that would have been the 91 yeah, I think that was one. Dusty's last appearance. Yeah, so. I think that might have been the first time I ever saw Dusty because I remember renting that tape and I just kind of didn't really get who he was or what his deal was and I wasn't overly enamored with him. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've never, in going back and watching old Dusty from like his prime, He's never been a guy I've been particularly drawn to. Um, he's kind of fun, I guess, but just not a guy I, I particularly seek out. So um, I don't know. Maybe if I had experienced Prime Dusty um, in the early '80s in NWA, I would have more. I would have had more of an affinity for him. But I don't know. I, I don't think he was ever. He was ever really my kind of guy, and I think that jump was was an example uh was probably the prime example of what you said because like there was there was other guys like Hacksaw Duggan and people like that who were who were big draws as as what they were and then they, they come to WF and they they just kind of are given a more goofy, cartoony kind of persuasion. Um but with Dusty it was a whole nother level because this was a guy who was a national star, a big time national star and he was just given this kind of cartoon gimmick and there wasn't really a huge ceiling for it and it's just yeah it kind of hit the things that made him a special talent were kind of did see true a little bit but it was limited well i mean i thought i mean for for a guy that was brought in there to be humiliated and um <laughs> degraded i thought he got over pretty darn well um to his credit you know like having a guy you know cut you know promos about like plumbing people's toilets and uh <laughs> then come out in polka dots with a uh an overweight african-american woman in her you know mid-40s as a love interest wouldn't necessarily suggest to you that he was going to uh, get over but i mean credit to the guy he did i mean fans fans you know enjoyed his act um you know to his credit so i mean i i, I mean dusty is i think uh you know very much dependent on uh your what you know what you enjoy out of wrestling because you know is, is wrestling you know at least for you know most of the period um you know that 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 there's been widespread tape has not been particularly good but his his promos were always so good and I mean, I remember in particular, 
um, the the feud he did with with superstar Billy Graham and the promos they did back on and forth on each other, which uh, you know there's a lot of that in either the Dusty Rhodes DVD that AF put out or the Superstar Billy Graham DVD that AF put out, or maybe both for that matter. But I remember seeing a lot of it in one of them. Oh, that stuff was just so tremendous um, and so ahead of its time because they were just I mean there was just such great modern you know, quick promos back and forth in, in sort of the style that would become more, uh, more popular with sort of larger than life characters with a lot of flourish and a lot of, um, you know, pizzazz to it. So, yeah, I mean, that to me is sort of the, the, the height of dusty and to his credit, I mean, he had some great matches during that period too. So yeah, I mean, uh, there you go. (laughs) I think the, the irony is, is for one, what was, most assuredly a mean-spirited uh, treatment of him uh, at the time for, you know, the rival booker of your opposite uh, number is that, um, like you said, Todd, it got over. He actually headlined with, with Savage and others uh, for a long period of time he was there. And um, also the fact that his children would end up working for the company and um, to this day, and he joined himself whenever that was like probably 07 08 they just kind of uh have reimagined that whole period as pleasant and enjoyable and and a, a fair use of dusty roads in polka dots and uh, american dream music sapphire has never really been explained tell me this did so i know dusty was pretty much like people wanted him out of of nwa by this point people were sick of his booking he had a lot of issues with people um he 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 kind of had to go. So, did he? Did Vince pay him a good amount of money just for the purpose of bringing him in to kind of humiliate him, or was it a bit of a lowball offer? But Dusty just so wanted the spotlight that he was willing to go and make the best of a bad, bad lot. That's a good question. I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, the thing was at that point they weren't really. They didn't have the guarantees, so it was more. Sort of, you know, Vince would say, hey, we'll make you some money here. And you sort of had to accept it. So I would think you probably went in there with not really knowing what he was going to get. And then he got paid just sort of where he was on the card, which wasn't bad. Because in spite of the way he was portrayed, they gave him, you know, fairly big name opponents. You know, the Savage Feud, Big Boss Man was fairly high level when he did there. So I bet I, made, I bet he made solid money there. But when he went there, he wasn't sure what he was going to get. That's my guess. What's funny about that is I would say of the list of people we're halfway through that I've classified as the NWA to WWF era of these jumps, I think Dusty achieved his potential more than all the subsequent guys who you would think Vince would outright covet a lot more and and really want to. A lot the you know, cliche thing of like, oh, if, if a true genius like Vince could just get his hands on these guys, he could make so much money. And then you see with the Legion of Doom and Sid, who came over the next couple of years... Um, I would throw Luger in there, too. Yeah, exactly. These are, like, Vince prototypes who, whatever the uh, limitations of that WWF vision and system and hierarchy for how they do things, that it they, I would say, all were definitely more successful... Before they got there, well, yeah. Well, an- answer me this. How much do you think that was to do with having to bring in the steroid policy in the early 90s? Or do you think those guys had, had gotten off to so slow out of the blocks before that kind of really got institutionalized that 
they were, I don't want to say a lost cause, but they're already pretty damaged goods compared to what they were coming from WCW. I guess it's different stories in each example, but yeah, I think they were had been flattened out and, and marginalized before even that summer 91 had happened. The Road Warriors had been there for a year. I think they did start in headlining six-man tags with the Ultimate Warrior against Demolition. Um, the fact that they were renamed from the Road Warriors, I guess, is maybe endemic to the whole thing we're talking about, as was Sid. In, and uh, just Go ahead. On, on the Road Warriors, in, in Europe, they're, they're pretty well-known. Like, they're a pretty big deal, but to everyone in Europe, it's as the Legion of Doom. No one really knows them as, as the Road Warriors. That, that wasn't a big deal. They were over... Like during that that boom, especially in the UK in like ninety one, ninety two, uh, the Legion of Doom were hugely overact. Um, you can tell from like the pop they get uh, at SummerSlam and Wembley and whatnot. But uh, do you think there's much as far as fans in America that really identify with them as the Legion of Doom, or do you think pretty much every fan from that era sees the Legion of Doom as a as a kind of downgraded version of the Road Warriors. I'll speak for myself and then let Todd go. My impression is, yeah, I'm with you. I know them more as the Legion of Doom because that's where I first saw them in 1990 on, on like, rented videotapes and things like that. Um, but I missed their genuine, like, super-duper star heyday as the Road Warriors in uh, NWA and everywhere else before that. So... Um, I think, yeah, to to a generation of people, the WWF writing of history just kind of makes them Legion of Doom, and they, you know, Legion of Doom is uh, a related name to them. So, uh, I guess the difference is like I don't remember whether the Legion of Doom went into the WWF E Hall of Fame as the Legion of Doom in Chicago, but I think it's plausible that they did. Whereas when they went into the Observer Hall of Fame, it was definitely as the Road Warriors. Yeah, and I, I just sort of echo what Justin said. I think a lot of people know them as the Legion of Doom just because, you know, WWE is the dominant promotion, and that's what they were more often than not in the uh, in the WWF um, when they were there. As far as sort of the general point about the success of some of those people, I think there's definitely a story to be told about Vince not utilizing some of the people that you'd expect him to utilize as well as he could have. But to me, I think with the examples we've been talking about with the Road Warriors and Sid, I think those sort of fall into different categories as far as what happened. With the, with the Road Warriors, I think the deal was just that it wasn't a tag team territory. Like, I don't, I don't feel like Vince messed up the Road Warriors. You know, like, he booked them strong. You know, he put them over, you know, demolition. He put them over power and glory. He put them over the Nasty Boys. He gave them the titles. You know, he got the, you know, two, you know, the gigantic natural disaster to sort of play off of. Um, I don't feel like he did a lot of stuff wrong with them. I think the problem was that, you know, they'd been wrestling in territories where tag team wrestling had often meant a lot. And so tag team wrestlers could be drawing cards on their own. You know, people coming in to see a tag team match with the Road Warriors against, you know, whoever it was. Um, but in the WWF, there wasn't that history. You know, the tag team was a, a secondary title. And so no matter how hard you push them and no matter how much charisma they had, it was difficult for them to get over at a, a certain level. 
And as far as Sid goes, um, you know, Sid was more just sort of bad luck. You know, he, he brought, you know, they brought them in there in that, you know, referee thing at SummerSlam. And, you know, I thought that was a fine, a fine place to bring. It wasn't, you know, spectacular, but it was fine. And then he got injured. So that kept them out for a long period of time. And then they enter into the Hogan feud, which I thought was pretty darn, you know, pretty well done. Um, as far as the presentation of him, but then, you know, after, you know, at WrestleMania, he had the, you know, the, the issue with the drug test and being wanted to take the drug test and, you know, the, the, the controversy about whether he's trying to get someone else to do it for him. Um, but that got him fired there. So it wasn't, it wasn't to me a story with either of those guys of Vince sort of screwing up as far as, you know, being a promotional genius of not knowing how to use the guys. I think it was just more the, uh, you know, the circumstances of, uh, the promotion at the time. Yeah, I uh, I think that's uh, all well said. It's hard not to argue that uh, really from the moment they came in and helped the Hart Foundation win the titles at that SummerSlam that the Legion of Doom weren't being pushed as the number one uh, babyface tag team uh, on through uh, winning the belts from the Nasty Boys as a transition to them onto... And then I think that's where, yeah, Alan, your point comes in. If it wasn't for the... Uh, Zahorian stuff and the steroid controversy, Legion of Doom, I'm sure, would have had maybe a continuous run for a while. Um, ironically, then the Steiners sort of took their place as that imported team and also, I would say, had a less successful and um, contra- not controversial, but complicated contractual run there where uh, all parties were not maybe as satisfied as they thought they would be. I, I guess we'll get to Luger subsequently. What can you say about Luger is that you know they certainly tried hard with him. Maybe well, Ultra they initially Patriot. they initially brought him in to not be a wrestler. The jump wasn't to the WF; it was to the WBF. Yep. Oh, that was Which that was intended to be temporary, but yeah. Oh, was yeah, really? that was sort okay. of a, a loophole. Yeah, because he had he had a contract where he couldn't wrestle for another promotion for another year. So Vince was like, "Aha! <laughs> I got an idea here. I'll bring in Luger. I'll use him as a WBF for a year. He'll get the rub from that. That'll build him up real huge. And then I'll bring him into the WBF." So yeah, the first <laughs> the first introduction of him was at, uh, if I recall correctly, at WrestleMania eight it would have been and uh you know bobby heenan doing a phoner with uh with lex luger which i think they aired off the home video release so i didn't see until years later when there was like a different um a different feed of it but they sort of built him up as this big you know star for the uh for the w wbf and then they brought him out as narcissist as royal rumble 93 in that amazing segment Right, that was when they finally he was so hot coming off that year of body stars television. <laughs> and once he was ready to be inserted into the wrestling promotion, it was like, oh, now you're off and running. Um, so, but Luger maybe is just a, also the story of Lex Luger's career is just not living up to expectations. So I don't know how much you can drop it at the feet of Vince and how much it's just like, it's Luger, he has a ceiling, sometimes he's gotten close to it, other times he's dropped the ball, other times outside forces have conspired against him. Um, The big one, though, and I think he's a case certainly unique all on his own, is Ric Flair. Um, Fuck, I thought you were going to say Terry Taylor. (laughs) Um, Two excellent blonde heel workers. Flair almost is held back, though, from what he could have done because the Sid thing came right before him. Um, They got there just months apart. They left under very different circumstances, though. Uh, Sid was like, I'm leaving. (laughs) I would like to go work here. And uh, 
should I? I will. How about that? And he did. And they said, well, as long as you go out on a stretcher for El Gigante. And he said, you got it. And then he got up off the stretcher and walked out. And they're like, well, what are we going to do? We're dumb. Whereas Flair was outright fired. Um, although I think they did attempt to reconcile with him. But by then he was like, fuck you. I'm going to New York. Um, so Flair is not the Vince uh, dollar signs in his eyes prototype that like the other guys but he's rick flair and uh he's clearly a big deal and um it's a mixed bag because certainly he achieved a lot in that short wwf run i think you know winning the royal rumble pretty big deal um getting the world title obviously big deal but it also felt like it could have been more and it should have been more to the point where maybe too much of it hinges on like the fact that he did or did not wrestle Hogan at WrestleMania eight is usually used as the barometer of whether it was successful or not when there was a lot going on. But I don't know. What do you think? Uh, Todd flair in WWF on a scale of achieved everything versus achieved, uh, nothing is what he should have. Hmm. What are these hosting terms? God, how do you phrase it? I need to just need neutral stuff. Like Todd speak on that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I need to like, come up with some other people to sort of put on this scale because like you know if we just yeah. have one person it's sort of difficult to know what that means <laughs> but i felt i felt like flair's run there was successful um and and flair unlike some of these other people that felt like more of sort of the, the you know the big promotional jump that we were talking about in the sense of like when they introduced sid it was like you didn't necessarily have to know who it was it was like here's this new um, you know, this big, gigantic guy is going to be the referee. His name is Sid Justice. There's never been a Sid Justice before. And it was like, oh, wow, you know, this guy looks scary. What's he going to do? Whereas Ric Flair was like, here's the real world champion. And they didn't spell it out. Like, here's, you know, the NWA champion jumping. But the idea was clearly, you know, telling, uh, you know, a segment of the of the fan base, you know, this is a guy who you should know who this is. And he's here to prove his supremacy over the guys who are here. Um, I was watching his, uh, you know, his sort of initial appearance, his uh, his jump to WWF, and one cool Easter egg for that of of the fans of the uh, the WWF Mania shows, you get to see where that the WWF Mania set connects to the WWF Primetime set in the uh, old WWF offices for people that would watch each of those but never really uh, never see them interact. So uh, Bobby Heenan sort of walks from one to the other, which I I sort of enjoyed. Um, and oh my God. Yes, it was a big... When I picture childhood, I picture that mania set. <laughs> yes, Todd Pettengill, uh, you know, screaming about and doing crazy, wacky hijinks and occasionally... Stephanie Wyatt in a box. Yes, and occasionally being scared by Giant Gonzalez. Yeah, good times. It's just a weird purgatorial monitor world that thankfully no one else really has to live in anymore. If they wanted authenticity to the network, they would set up monitor world again <laughs> and force those people there. <laughs> But please. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, Flair was, uh, I thought Flair was, uh, I thought he had a good run there. I mean, it, you know, y- y- there's obviously, there's more that you can do with anyone, but, you know, he was the world champion. He had some, you know, some great matches with the biggest stars of the time. He did some great promos. Um, the yeah, He had, you know, to me, and I think a lot of people, the greatest moment in Royal Rumble history. Um, so yeah, thumbs up on, uh, on Ric Flair during that period. What did you think of the debut being in that studio setting versus on like a big show in front of a big crowd? It was kind of a different way of doing it. I, I can't think of any others that come to mind where, where that approach was taken. Uh, maybe, actually, probably the best one is um, Macho Man coming into um, 
Memphis from ICW, which obviously a smaller scale promotional jump, but I know that was done on the studio show. But then again, studio wrestling was very much well, what Memphis wrestling was, whereas WF, they had their studio show, but it wasn't like the be all and end all of the show. And using it as a vehicle for Flair to debut, I find quite interesting. Um, what did you guys think of that? I think that was going back more to the uh, the discussion earlier about syndication versus uh, versus primetime. I, I actually I'm speculating here, but I think I think the deal was that they wanted to establish him relatively quickly, and the syndication tapings were more far in advance, so they wanted to debut him um, on this you know this this show that was going to be able to air quicker than the syndication that you were taping. Um, for a while later. That's that's what I think anyway. As far as sort of how it came across, I mean, clearly, if you debuted Flair um, in front of uh, you know in front of a live audience of ten thousand people, particularly depending upon the market, if you chose the right market, I think it would have come was across. Where Survivor Series? Uh, Ninety one. Yeah, because I know he wrestled on that, and that was his first pay per view. So. I was thinking. I, I'm probably wrong, but I was thinking Ohio. I don't think that's probably mm-hmm. right. Um, yeah, that depending on that where that was, that could have been an, Michigan. An ideal I was setting. close. Sorry. Okay, God. that that could have. I don't know Michigan. Michigan's not really a, a flare country, country so to speak. But you know what? I think could have been really good if of if the, it could have worked out from a timing point of view. But that, that was well sure. after his. I'm sorry, that was well after his his, his debut though, because that was his first uh, pay per view. But he he debuted months okay. and months before that. Well, then maybe this would work. What? Could he have debuted feasibly at MSG for SummerSlam? Because I think that would have been so awesome with New York being like so the WF market, and then you would really feel like a big time outsider coming in. And it's not like he'd be a complete unknown or anything. I mean, the New York market is like, and the MSG crowd in particular are like some of the most educated, smart wrestling fans. They would have reacted big to Flair, I think. I don't have the timeline memorized, but the infamous Great American Bash was in the middle of July. So, like, that's when the problem started. I think there was a, you know, fallout period of that. By August, he was in because Heenan had showed the belt on, like, Wrestling Challenge, uh, I think before that SummerSlam. And what am I remembering on that SummerSlam? Didn't Heenan like go knock on Hogan's dressing room to get a comment and have the door slam? Okay. So I'm guessing Alan that September is when he was first like legally able to appear and they got him out there as soon as possible. I could be wrong though, since they, you know, treated those pay-per-views as uh, like the closing of a chapter before moving on to a new thing. But I think Todd's point about syndication is right because flair goes right into some even unadvertised headline matches with Hogan on house shows, uh, starting that September, October. I think in talking about his potential, I'm indoctrinated in hearing, uh, Dave Meltzer for 15 years talking about how, uh, flair drew more coming off, um, WCW television then after he had appeared as a WWF superstar in Dave always makes the point of him being surrounded by cartoon characters on that uh, Survivor Series team and doing an interview with the warlord behind him uh, took down uh, his allure as an outsider and made him just a, a regular WWF main eventer who were those guys oh the Mountie of course that's that was a, a unique 
iteration of the Four Horsemen was Rick's uh, 1991 Survivor's team. I feel like that team wasn't that bad. Let me let me grab that up because I, I feel like there were some stars on both sides. The Mountie was definitely there. I remember that. They were against they were against Bulldog, Brett Piper, um, Virgil. So Virgil. Ted DiBiase was probably Ted like, DiBiase Ted was there. Yeah. Flair, the Mountie, Ted DiBiase, and the Warlord. That's not a bad team. But the Mountie is a, a living police officer from Canada <laughs> in a Mountie's uniform. He's the Mountie. He's, and the warlord had a trident, so not quite. Yeah, the... you, you can't you confiscate the uh, the headpieces and the um, trident and the the shock um, the shocker thingy. Um, then I think uh, as reluctant as those men would be to give away their, their fine possessions, you you confiscate them, and I think you got a pretty credible foursome. So you can picture Rick in the dimly lit uh, TBS studio era everyone associates with Saturday Night and their tapings and all that, doing a promo of like Jacques Rougeau and uh, pre-Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase. I'm more, I'm more thinking uh, 2003 Evolution. Warlord oh. of Batista. <laughs> Holy shit. Jacques Rougeau, the, the clean-cut clean cut young man as uh, Randy Orton. And... Uh, the the wrestler's wrestler Ted DiBiase is Triple H. My God. You know Triple H was really Triple H was really pushing the the fine suits and the the high rolling lifestyle like at that point when he was doing his wannabe Flair stuff. So that was quite akin to, to Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, and then Flair is Flair. So um, uh, yeah, I I think that was maybe the first incarnation we had of, of Evolution. Also, by the way, adding to the fun here of of uh, checking the, the Wikipedia page of the results here, uh, just the I, I I appreciate this. Ric Flair, the Mountie, Teddy Biasi, and the Warlord in parentheses with Mister Perfect, Jimmy Hart, Sensational Sherry, and Harvey <laughs> Whippleman <laughs> defeated Piper, Bret Hart, uh, Virgil, and Davey Boy Smith. So adding, I think, to the cartoonish that. aspect with a gigantic crowd of 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 wacky heel managers i just picture poor matilda on one side of the ring while they're all just yelling <laughs> at the poor dog these poor horrible individuals the other i think that was winston by then oh probably was First like bulldog, singular bulldog was winston i, I should have um, known that winston was the dog of my childhood actually <laughs> other talking points i've heard for 15 years is now your newfound colleague Bruce Mitchell, sort. I think his point has been like if Flair had come in and started just like beating everybody with the figure four clean, leading up to this big match with Hogan, then he would have been a big deal. Instead of uh, sneaky times, Ric Flair, who won the Survivor Series match by rolling back into the ring when everyone else was fighting on the floor, and who won the Royal Rumble when uh, the other two guys pulled each other out. But I think that's assigning a level of like serious heel Ric Flair that he himself runs away from and is not limited to just this WWF run in terms of things that would have been best for Ric Flair's potential. So if uh, my secret theme was punching a hole in the Vince is going to make a star out of these guys' things, and I didn't... I've. We really should save him for the end, but I, another thing that came out in the court case <laughs> adjudicated the rights to the uh, J-Mart show here is that we I have to bury Sting in front of you. <laughs> so one of the arguments long-standing about Sting, also I'm obligated with the caveat to say, I like Sting, he's great. What's not to like about Sting? But it's always like, oh, if Sting had just gone to WWF, he would have been like 10 times 
Bret Hart was at this time and could have truly uh, achieved his potential, but all of his peers <laughs> found out otherwise, and my argument was always, what would have prevented Sting, other than his innate stingertude, from the same fate befalling him? And I think we finally have an answer to that. We saw that uh, Sting in WWE, uh, some cool things, and in the end, oops. So, does that the end? Is that, does that the final Sting uh, conversation we have to have? Or is there, like... I guess he might be back to wrestle the Undertaker, and it won't come anew. Uh, but... I hope not. I'm I'm done with Sting. But so <laughs> the hand of history and the sands of time have they all been spilled asunder and set, tell you now that we can like through holographic technology tell you exactly what would have happened if Sting had joined all these people in WWF in the early '90s, or would anybody like to disagree? Well, well uh, hold on, no, Justin. Well, I appreciate your 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 enthusiasm to you know sure. dig in those nails in the coffin of, of Sting's mm-hmm. uh, Sting's career. I mean, I, I think there's definitely merit to to the basic point you make that that, that Sting. Um, and I don't even know who's who's really saying how big he would have been if he'd gone to WWF anyway. Like I, I I don't know. I feel like I feel like people I feel like most people would expect him to do fairly similarly to what he did in WCW, um, which is successful but not sort of a big difference maker. But with that said, I feel like it's kind of unfair to the poor guy to say like because you know his his run is like a a sixty three year old man against Triple H <laughs> um, didn't go as well as it could have. Um, that that reflects on you know what could have happened when he was in his prime. I mean, it was you know it's it's a different period, a different era, and uh, a different opponent. So I I, I don't know. I, I I don't feel like that necessarily tells us anything uh, much about what would have happened in an earlier time. I think uh, if we talked about like the soul spirits of Lex Luger and Flair and how certain things just seem to keep happening to them over time, I see your point and have no argument and no malice against Sting. I swear, <laughs> Sting has an, an open invitation to join the three of us on a show if he ever wants to. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Think we can get him? Uh, I'll work on it. Let's assume yes. Um, I didn't agree to this. I'll prepare, I'll prepare questions. <laughs> Perfect. Great. Sting, Sting. Uh, we look forward to your email. Oh, anyway, so I take it all back, Sting. I'm sorry. No, I think what, what happens to Sting, and you see with Starcade 97, is just this kind of thing uh, where things for Sting have a way of breaking incorrectly, and Sting is just kind of deferential. Not in the same way Ric Flair is, where Ric Flair is just like, whatever, slash, I want to be a heel. Everyone beat me up. <laughs> but, um... Watch me make a hosting point and segue this. You see it with Sting's title run in 1990. You see it with Sting having to kind of pick up the pieces in the absence of his contemporary peers, uh, Flair and Luger, when they piece out. Um, the Black Scorpion thing is a thing that happened. So, it wouldn't That's it have a true been... statement. No one can say otherwise. Would it have not been... I don't think it would have changed history, but wouldn't it have been cool, though... Get this, lads. If uh, the Black Scorpion was running around doing his wicked magics a year later, and then instead of revealing him as fucking nobody, they could have revealed him as the, instead, magical Halloween phantom, and the Black <laughs> Scorpion was Rick Rude, and he beat uh, uh, Sting for the world title at Starcade 91, and it was like, oh my god, the Black Scorpion is a guy. <laughs> well, I Instead, think... he was merely a Halloween phantom. I think um I think Rude 
uh, I don't know. A lot of people loved Root in late 80s WF, and he was great. Don't get me wrong. Really, really great. But I think the peak of Rick Rude was that Dangerous Alliance run. And having Paul Heyman by his side, well, he had Bobby Heenan by his side. Although, I think he had a better uh, chemistry with Heyman than with Heenan. Um, maybe marginally so, but I think better. Oh, no, I'm uh, with, don't, you don't need to back up. I'm, 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 I'm behind you. Paul, okay. Paul now, now, than, uh, than now I will I will plow forward, knowing that Todd has my back on that. Um, so I think considering the fact that for me, until obviously he, he ended up kind of picking up some injuries and stuff, that was a very much a successful move, and Rude certainly uh, did some of his best work um, after jumping. If he had jumped that bit earlier and had been given that more prominent position as go as like the main title challenger and winning the belt at that Starcade, I think um that would have made him an even bigger deal. I think that would have uh, that could have really set up a, a good tenure for a really good tenure for Rick Rude in WCW, which it ended up being anyway. And obviously the things that cut it short were were injury, which may have happened regardless. But I think that extra year where he really like his his last year in WF. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it could have been spent better. Well, actually, he did. It was a year he kind of bounced around in the Indies, wasn't it? Because he he was involved in in there was some like random Northeast Indie that I remember seeing him involved with in with like Honky Tonk Man or someone. So yeah, Root bounced around the Indies between WF and WCW. So if that time was spent as Sting's main opponent in the world title scene, and then maybe he had a different sort of opponent in in the Dangerous Alliance. I, I think it could have worked out better. I'll set the stage and then I'll throw it to Todd Martin. Uh, but so my memory is he did the rerun feud with Warrior for the world title, and then he got hurt, and then he was advertised for shows against the Warrior, and then he wanted to be paid for them since his name drew the house, and Vince was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would I give you my money? Come on. <laughs> and. He, uh, I feel like that may be a little bit of an unfair characterization of the way Vince McMahon made the point. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, paraphrasing. So then uh, Rude was going to be programmed with the big boss man. I think Rude was even boss man's opposite on that Hulkamaniacs Earthquakes team at Survivor Series. Instead, Rude was what ended up being fired forever from the WWF for making disparaging comments about the big boss man's mother. <laughs> so your timetable is right, Alan. Then whatever contractual uh, holdup there was with Rick Rude, uh, between, it was about uh, a year off national television before WCW Event Centers teased a mysterious Halloween phantom who would be working conveniently at Halloween Havoc. You, you got to think. I wonder if, if maybe before whatever legal issues came up to prevent him from jumping, maybe there was a plan at some point that he was going to be Black Scorpion because it does seem a little strange that. Well, no, like, no, no, they, they, they were they were definitely doing Black Scorpion angles before he'd, he'd had any problems with WF. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then never mind. Uh, I just think it's a little funny that he did end up having a mysterious um, Halloween phantom unveiling as if it was like, oh, well, he was going to be Black Scorpion. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's just do that kind of thing anyway, but I guess not. Yeah, that's the uh, the irony is that uh, the Halloween phantom, the Black Scorpion was built up for months and did a lot of stuff, whereas I think they just said the Halloween phantom is going to have a match against whoever the Tom fuck Zank. Tom Zank. Yeah, and 
and uh, then we'll see what's up. So they were also advertising the creatures on this card, so I just didn't know why all these ghoulies and monsters <laughs> had suddenly descended on the World Championship Wrestling. I, I very much enjoyed this one, and I'm completely with you, Alan. Like, I thought this was the best run of Rick Root's career. I thought he was tremendous um, during this period. Just, I mean, a really fucking good overall performer. I mean, I, you know, top of the line um, as a heel. Uh, but what I liked about it was, was, was exactly that, that, what you referred to, Justin, was the fact that you had, like, these creatures, and you had this Halloween phantom, and I remember thinking as a kid, like, a Halloween phantom, this isn't going to be good. <laughs> you know, this is going to be some garbage. This will be, you know, nothing big at all. And so, like, so often with the big, like, mystery reveal, it's the exact opposite where you're like, wow, this is going to be great, and it's Savio <laughs> Vega. And, like, this was the one where it's like, eh, this is going to be nothing, and then it's Rick Rude. Yeah, so I, I I love the I love the Rick Rude thing though because it, it you know like it, so often the expectations are low and they our expectations are high and they come in low and this one expectations are low they came in high and they did so much that first night to make him look good. I mean, he just destroyed Tom Zank. The announcer's like, this guy looks familiar, and then he takes it <laughs> off, cuts a great promo. Paul Heyman is always already his manager, and it's like, okay, you've got a main event act. Day one, I thought that you know that that was you know pretty much perfect across the board. WCW in 1991, the way it was run, its leadership, its organizational design, and the whole Sid fiasco trumped by the even bigger Flair fiasco, they were very much a laughing stock. And I think uh, while their business never really turned around until Hogan showed up, I think. The the flailing ended here with the pair of acquisitions of uh, Rude in October, and then a month later, Rude wins the U.S. title from Sting through scheming and plots, and for some reason, people coming out of boxes, but that was ultimately the dangerous uh, alliance thing. And then it was the same clash, right, where Dustin Rhodes and Barry Windham had lost the tag titles to the Enforcers, Arn Anderson, who's back by now. Uh, you can read his Wikipedia if you want to see <laughs> how he got back here. And Zabisco, they Larry the Cruncher Wyndham's hand in a, a car at that Halloween Havoc in a scene reminiscent of that uh, Hideo Tommy injury. And then, so Dustin Rhodes was going to challenge them for the titles on this clash. And he had a mystery partner who was also <laughs> a Thanksgiving phantom. Am I remembering this all right? <laughs> not, not the Thanksgiving phantom part, but everything mm -hmm. else correct. Was it a man in a big dragon suit? That was the best part of it, was they had the big mystery partner, and they bring <laughs> out the mystery guy dressed in a dragon costume. It was like, what the, what kind of mystery, you know, mystery getup is this? But hey, you know, it was, it was, it was a good payoff, if nothing else. Uh, Gary Michael Capetta's pitch is a unique one, and I definitely remember him going, It's Ricky the Dragon Steamboat! <laughs> and I don't know if that's exactly what happened, or if just memory molecules have fitted it that way. I remember the commentators were... Uh, again, this could be memory mo molecules at work here, but uh, <laughs> they were like speculating, Oh, well, it's clearly uh, some man from the Orient, uh, where we know uh, <laughs> they like to uh, come out with these... With these large kind of uh, headdresses and costumes, and would be uh, they'd be quite over the top as part of their entrance. So it's clearly one of these. And uh, oh my God, it's Ricky Steamboat! Wow, 
I think they might have even said it's it's pro- this guy probably has a good martial arts background. <laughs> they were really uh, hammering home the stereotype for that. Of course, the I'm sure I've talked about this on on shows before, but of course the the great line from that angle is, uh, um, oh no, not Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> And then they had a great match to boot. Oh, a great, uh, great match. I, this uh, live TV aspect is a, a big difference to all the WWF syndicated guys we just talked about who appeared with vignettes or Bobby Heenan showing a belt. It's, I think, a spiritually a precursor to all the uh, late 90s jumps we're going to talk about. Others here. Well, let, also, because uh, the, the two Ricks here, um, this is not Steamboat's only jump. From like 1988 to 1991, he ping pong between both companies like four times, and everyone seemed to end with animosity. <laughs> the the uh, the WWF run with the WrestleMania three thing. He wait, no, the second one, he said he was going to retire, and they were like, "Do a job to the Undertaker on this taping," and he was like, "I can't because I have to retire right now." Bonnie said so. And they were like, you promise? And he said, yes. And he was on the class. I thought he retired the other time, too. God, I think you're right. Because <laughs> he was actually out for a little while then, which I think was like, his idea was like, okay, I'm retired. And then like, he got the offer he couldn't refuse, i.e., you know, a few months went by and he <laughs> came back. Right. And there's a, a jump we didn't talk about is him showing up on uh, NWA TV wasn't as like Eddie Gilbert's partner winning another hot tag team match. That's right. So. That's his deal. <laughs> and then the dragon run in between um, put him on the pile of uh, WWE guys who did not maximize their NWA potential. So these Ricks, they're jumping all over the damn place, <laughs> providing content for this show. And um, I think we, we handled it, right? Does that cover wrestling history up to the Eric Bischoff era? We're done. <laughs> we did it. Okay, so I think the, um, the secret theme there is... Um, WWF sort of stepping their foot on guys and saying, you'll be whatever I tell you to be, and WCW sort of uh, capitulating in a big way and saying, come here, explore all of your avenues, be everything you can be. And that's going to maybe come to define that Atlanta-based company in a big way as a man named Eric Bischoff becomes the president, whatever the fuck, of WCW executive vice. I don't want to confuse it with Triple H's titles. You know, some of that stuff. It was Bischoff. He did his thing. Now, in the uh, WWF tellings of history, they usually just roll these Eric Bischoff moves into like a single sentence of terrible, terrible unfairness. When he snatched all of it, like Hogan and Savage and Hall and Nash in one fell swoop, and of course we, our business dropped at that point. But I think it's two distinct things. Eric first comes, and he signs Hulk Hogan and a bunch of uh, Hulk Hogan-related uh, human bodies. Um, the thing people remember jump-wise... Hacksaw <laughs> Jim Duggan resents that. <laughs> The, uh, so the lore is that Vince was like, oh boy, Hogan and Savage and uh, ultimately Piper are done as draws. Guess got to move on. Guess got to put John Cena out to pasture and have the chubby NXT guy lay him out because it's Roman Reigns time forever. Uh, so Eric says, Hulk Hogan worked for WCW. And unlike the negotiations with Piper and Bret Hart where... WCW like couldn't even make a real offer. They did get Hulk Hogan for realsies, and uh, 
what? There's a big parade, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a fun time. Like, I I don't know what they were necessarily. Uh, just to 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 focus on Hogan specifically, like I I don't know um, that it necessarily. I don't like what what I'm thinking about is like what they were thinking about in the office. Where like Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan are like, all right, what are we going for here? We're gonna have a big parade, and they're gonna. Be- <laughs> celebrating in the streets and it's going to sort of be like I'm gonna be, I'm Mickey Mouse or something like I don't know what the <laughs> idea was but, but my god it was a spectacle you know with the you know the streamers going down and you know the the people walking alongside as Hogan's like on a you know on a on a uh, on a you know like a little what would you call it like a sort of like a what is that a float yeah, like a float sort of thing. Um, you know, waving at the at the happy crowd. You know, in 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 Orlando, it was it was one of the weirder uh, introductions of a new of a new talent. They did like the press conference with Hulkster cutting his promos. Yeah, it was it was something else. I, I... Mean Gene was already there, right? Didn't he just assume impresario duties? Yeah, I think so. I think Hogan uh, coming into WCW as an I was going to say outsider, but that's something else. It's like, if you think of Hogan, like, coming, and let's say there was, like, horsemen running around as the top heels instead of the Dungeon of Doom. Like, aesthetically, that's kind of interesting. If, like, uh, the reverse of when Flair jumped to WWF and found him in WWF land, and he was still Ric Flair. But Hogan wasn't so much a jump as it was, like, WCW jumped into Hogan, you know? And, like, now the the Brutus is there, and... uh, That'd be interesting. I think that's a an interesting uh, differentiation between Flair and Hogan, because with Flair going to WF and WF kind of staying as, as it was, the more cartoony kind of, there was that kind of a, a square peg in a round hole kind of a feel about Flair. And you, you kind of leave yourself asking, oh, it would be uh, with the brain busters as well. Um, you kind of leave yourself being like, oh, I wish they could adapt more to this guy. Where, as Hogan coming to WCW, and they pretty much totally adapted to this guy by adhering to his every request and turning it into the Hogan show, you're left thinking how how much more interesting it would have been if it was, like you said, that that more kind of old-school NWA feel, or even Dangerous Lions feel, WCW and having Hogan come in there and try to adapt. And I don't rule that out as something that Hogan would have been able to do quite well. I think he was almost in a a comfort zone element of who he was that I don't think he was probably looking to challenge himself at this point in his career, artistically, creatively. Um, So you didn't really get that. But I think I have... I like the idea of... I'm sorry, I like the idea of Hulk coming in there and going, I need some artistic challenges, brother. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think uh, I don't know I'm not the biggest Hogan fan in the world but like especially when he was younger he did enough like going to Japan adapting to the guys over there and working that style effectively and getting over over there I think Hogan could have come into a more WCW NBA version of that company and done quite well I think he could have had a feud with the feud with Vader wasn't awful but I think he could have had a feud with Vader, which was more a Vader feud than a Hogan feud, and I think it would have worked even better. Uh, I mean, Hogan challenging himself is great. If Hogan wanted to do like a gritty reboot of the Hulk Hogan character, and I think what you're talking about, we're actually gonna—he's gonna end up doing in 1996 in a way. But 
not just the WCW run, but everything Hogan did post Arsenio when like the age of Camelot came to an end and it took people a while to realize it was Hogan and Vince and then later Bischoff all wanted to just let's recreate the the 80s Hulkamania through science and magic and every pitch Hogan had was okay how about a fat guy sits on me and then I beat him or a strong guy beats me up and then I beat him and preferably one who beat me in the past yeah <laughs> so you, that's why, you know, you end up, why didn't Hogan and Ric Flair wrestle WrestleMania 8? Well, who do you think is going to draw against Hogan? Uh, The scrawny-ass nature boy uh, begging off? Or this monstrosity Sid Justice recreating, like, the the Mega Powers routine in in Sped Up? And then Hogan in 93, it's like, ah, save us! Let Hogan beat the fat guy for the belt! We'll be fine then! And then Hogan in in 94, uh, after he cycled through Flair... Uh, and Vader, then they was like, quick, put the Dungeon of Doom of the Hulk Hogan rogues gallery together. <laughs> and as long as I keep doing this, I'll be fine. And it took him a very long time to get out of that comfort zone. Post-Hogan, then there's a couple years of Hulkamania times versus the Dungeon of Doom. Terrible, but goodbye rates. And then comes Nitro, and then I think WCW and wrestling in general starts to become defined by people showing up on different shows, starting with Lawrence Fole, is that how you pronounce it? Lex Luger, who we talked about before. Surprise! This was like the jumpiest jump of all, I would have to say, on this jump-based show. (laughs) Speak on that. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, that's sort of the quintessential... uh... You know, one guy moving to the other promotion, and and everyone being aghast at the uh, at the repercussions. And really, that was one where like Luger benefited just from the fact that he jumped at, at that moment with Nitro. You know, like uh, you know, usually you have to do something more as far as like giving some sort of program or some sort of introduction or somehow tinkering with the character. But I mean, Luger just the fact that he showed up on the initial Nitro gave Luger a, a lot more momentum that he had going in, um, you know, to the, you know, a, a formula that I think uh, was copied in, in the years that followed because of how successful it was in that regard. He wore a really nice shirt when he debuted on Nitro. <laughs> like, I mean, really nice. Like he was, he was full blown looking uh, MacGyver-ish on that show. MacGyver, go, MacGyver going to some kind of a function. Could be the the way I'd put it. Well, I can't argue with that, but I would like to take a moment to wish good luck to all the students out there on their upcoming finals. Specifically, the students of Dr. James Naismith, aka Basketball. That's because the NBA finals are finally here, no pun intended, and there's no better resource for them than our sponsor, ESPN.com. ESPN.com is the official website of the ESPN channel, bringing the worldwide leader to the worldwide web. It is loaded with features for true sports nuts like news, scores, game recaps, stats, team rosters, player weights, and of course, with the finals in full swing, no pun intended, because not baseball, you can go to ESPN.com for a completely immersive NBA experience. Use the offer code SHAPS for a free trial at www.espn.com. It's da-da-da-da-da-da.com. Now, where were we? Well, after all this... No one can have any remaining questions of uh, the inherent nature of what it means to jump in professional wrestling up to this point in September of 1995. Oh, my love. (laughs) Jumping. 
that was crisscrossed is going to make you jump. <laughs> the Daddy <out>. Mac. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You've been outvoted in our in your jump references, Alan. The uh the irony here now is on uh two part podcasts there's a gimmick where they tape the whole thing at once and then in the middle the host asks to ask guys, we do you guys think I don't know, what do you think? You think you might want to come back and uh, finish this up uh down the road? You Josh, cool Josh you got fifty more minutes there for all stone cold. <laughs> Sure, Steve, I love talking to you. That was a poor Josh Barnett impersonation. <laughs> Josh Barnett, not a really impersonable kind of guy. <laughs> so, but we're we're gonna do that for realsies. Hey, hey, well let, let let's play it out in front of the, the viewers. Do you guys would you like to stop talking as we're talking <laughs> now after one more thing and then come back and finish up maybe in a week or two? Nah. How's that? Okay. I, I'm fine with the stop talking part. No, you you are going to be talking greatly. You you warm up there while while Justin leads into you. Well, hey, I got an impromptu idea. What say we wrap up there with Lex Luger as a natural breaking point? We'll pick it up with um, basically uh, wrestling changes into uh, the entire entity of professional wrestling is based on people changing t-shirts and being like, now I'm this. So uh, does that suit you, gentlemen? Can we all put our hands in the middle and do a triple handshake? Sounds like a plan. Then it's agreed. Before we do that, and I release you back into the wild, um, part of the court system dealings for the uh, legal rights and trademarks of uh, the J-Mart brand, DKP colon J-Mart, is that uh, there was one Todd segment um, sort of lost in the ether um, that w- has would never see the light of day <laughs> unless we shine it upon it here. And legally, uh, beyond that, I don't know what I'm allowed to say trademark-wise. Alan, what am I talking about here? You know how to say this. You work for the site properly. I believe, you be a conduit. I believe it's known as the Hubs of All segment. <laughs> yeah, so so basically... Uh, the Hobserver? <laughs> no, that's uh, uh, one of our favorite shows here on the Cubs Fan Cinematic Universe <laughs> Podcast Network. I've been listening every week. It's great. It's awesome. But uh, Todd, you'll have to do that sometime. But um, no, this is something else. This is uh, The Observor is uh, Dave Meltzer, 1980s Rebel. And I think it's fitting that... That's bring, Dave. Bringing it back here because I think that Dave is like he had to, the old gunslinger strap on the six shooters one more so time. Strap on? What? No. <laughs> Don't ruin my image of Dave as a Wild West gunslinger. <laughs> so that Dave is, is back for one last ride this week, shooting down the marks. And uh, in his honor, uh, and Todd's, to congratulate you on uh, a lifetime of uh, awesomeness. The here without interruption until asked is the final observer segment. Yes, yes. So. Typing sounds. Bump bump. Starring Todd Martin. Yes, we're spitballing like ideas for this, and and I think Alan had suggested um, doing some more of, of these segments because uh, we'd enjoy doing them uh, uh, back when I was doing stuff for the Observer site, but. Uh, I said, I don't know about doing like a whole segment of them, but I do, in fact, have uh, notes from a, uh, a final uh, 
a final segment that uh, we didn't end up doing. So uh, I said I could go ahead and read those off. So hopefully they aren't too bad because I literally, this is something I wrote about two months ago and have not touched since. So if in fact it's, uh, if it doesn't uh, work as well, I will, uh, I will blame it on that rather than anything else. By the way, my favorite rumor of this whole thing was that there's somehow heat between me and Dave over these observer segments, <laughs> which is just the most preposterous thing ever. No, no, there is no heat from Dave towards me for doing these observer segments. Um, not at all. Um, so, yeah, so here we go. Uh, uh, so we start in uh, September of 1986, where uh, the Hulk Hogan versus Paul Orndorff feud is uh, setting records. And an interesting note, they uh, run the match in the Mid-South Territory, and it bombs, drawing 2,700 in New Orleans and 3,000 in Houston. So... Even as DODAF is doing well in a lot of the territories it invaded, it really struggled against Watts, I think, uh, because the booking at that point was so good in the Mid-South that the people there were not as receptive towards um, some of the stuff that DODAF was doing. Uh, World Class is not receiving critical acclaim, unfortunately, at this time. In the familiar observer headings listing all the territories, we have UWF, AWA, Memphis, Florida, and Titan Sports, followed by World Trash. And world, <laughs> world Trash Championship Wrestling is indeed struggling, as uh, everyone of note is leaving the territory with the, uh, the Von Erichs and Little Else remaining. Uh, one of World Trash's key st- stations is in tor- turmoil as well, as Dave notes that Pat Robertson, the religious leader who owns the station, has a tentative d- deal to sell the station since he needs the money to finance his, run, his attempts to run for president. Dave then adds in parentheses, of the U.S., not the NWA. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This amuses me, but it also made me sad because the idea of Pat Robertson investing money and campaigning to be president of the National Wrestling Alliance would have been tremendous. Um, In our prostitution news of the week, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow was sentenced to three years probation for threatening the life of an Asbury Park prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) I read that like a news story. I was like, oh, that's kind of un- <laughs> kind of unseemly for the uh, the upbeat spin I'm putting on it. Um, so, yeah, so he pleaded guilty to making terroristic threats to Dorothy Moore uh, and told the judge that they had agreed on a price of $15 and went to Neptune Township, but he refused to pay her and order her out of the car. Um, always sad to hear when relationships fall apart. Uh, there's a it's note business, from... <laughs> It's tough on the relationships. What can you say? <laughs> so much. I, it, there was so much promise in, in the relationship, but things didn't work out. Uh, hey, it could have been worse. They could have been booked in an angle together. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Uh, there's a note from Florida that Hiro Matsuda is training a pair of former USFL players. Um, one is oh, they got their legs broke. <laughs> one is Ron Simmons, spelled S-I-M-M-I-N-S, who was a legit. Uh, All-American at Florida State with a legit 500-plus-pound bench press. And the other is Dewey Forte, 6'5", 300, an offensive lineman. Uh, is that Matt's dad? Say again? Is that Matt's dad? Forte? Ah, uh, yeah, and, uh, no, I, oh, I see what you do. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I do not, in fact, think so. Um, as, I meant Feuerstein. Uh, <laughs> you would hope that uh, you would hope that uh, his his son would be a, a little bit bigger uh, if uh, if his father was that big. And uh, this Forte sounds like he has a he may have a big future in wrestling. 
in the Thank God It's 2015 department, there's a note in the reader's pages from a reader who is looking for VHS or beta tapes of Crockett and Watts and is willing to trade AWA, WWF, or movies taped off of HBO, Showtime, <laughs> or Cinemax. Um, and I'm used to the idea of t- trading for wrestling tapes, but getting movies by having somebody tape them off of, H- of HBO on VHS and then mail them to you um, strikes me as just amazing. Uh, thank God we're not in that world anymore. Uh, getting back to World Trash. You've this got... guy's number, or <laughs> I'll, I'll, I've got it. I've got it somewhere here, but I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately. Shoot me an, shoot me an email. <laughs> How many MP4s would you trade for one VHS cassette, Alan? What do you? What's the weight of those? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, more for the Betamax, I think. And, uh, it depends what the movie are. If you could get me Sleepless in Seattle, we'd have a deal. Hmm. Sleepless in Seattle pre-production storyboards from 1986. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Seattle's a bit later, isn't it? Turner and Hooch? Would that be? <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah, there you go. So you're on a real Hanks kick, I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even realize. I, I didn't even cop that either, but I guess, yeah. Something subconscious going on there. <laughs> um, it's my it's my birthday weekend. If I want to spend it with Tom Hanks, I will. <laughs> I was always more of a splash guy myself. <laughs> um, you hear those stories in the uh, in the news from time to time about like a uh, about like someone's letter getting lost for like fifty years and then then it like showing up randomly. And I was thinking, could you imagine much worse of a thing to get lost forever than like an old VHS cassette? You know, like they find something that was sent like thirty years ago. You're like, wow, a package from thirty years ago, and it's like a VHS of Indiana Jones. It's like, man, I fucking love that. Todd. What are you talking? About? My VHS is still hooked up. I'd be all over that. A message in a bottle. What if I got lost for a really long time and then space aliens or future generations were like, what is this missive from designation Earth? Ah, interesting. The adventures of an affable everyman and a dog that dies at the end. Spoilers! (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. Terrible. Um, Yeah, so getting back to world trash, we've got a new world champion, Black Bart. Um, this is not uh, received well in the Observer. Quote, the decision to give the strap to Bart has to rank as one of the stupidest decisions any promotion has made in a long time. No offense to Bart's ability in the ring because I feel he's an underrated performer, but he has no color and more importantly was strictly a prelim wrestler for the last year for Crockett and has done several jobs on TV. From a national perspective, it makes world class every bit, if not more minor league than it already is. Um, end quote. And indeed, I remember the first time I heard that Black Bart was a former uh, world champion, and I thought, that jobber? Um, so not necessarily the best decision. Poor Tony Atlas has had a rough week. Um, he's fired by the WWF, and Dave just heaps insult upon injury by describing Tony as atrocious and adds that more than one person has described Tony as the least intelligent person in the business. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and given some of the people in the business, that's some feat. Oh. See what I did there? See what I did there? Um, <laughs> Rick Rude. Uh, <laughs> A little bit slower there. Yeah, so Rick, Rick Rude joins, uh, joins Crockett, and the word is he's going to be managed by number one Paul Jones. Um, Dave writes, that's about the slot a guy of his ability belongs. A oh. dagger directed Rick Rude's way. 
<laughs> Although, in fairness, yeah, maybe I, maybe Dave was a big number one Paul Jones fan, but <laughs> I think not. Yeah, I, I, in fairness, I, I didn't think Rick Rude had put it together at all at that point. So I think, like you know, a few years later, the the Rick Rude of that period was uh, was not the Rick Rude of this period. I enjoy uh, Observer debuts, and we get a couple more in the fall of '86. Uh, the first is Eric Watts, the son of Bill, who was picked uh, leaning quarterback prospect at the Jack and John Elway football camp in Palo Alto. Uh, Watts was a uh, high school senior and was being recruited supposedly by Stanford and BYU at this point. I'd always wondered how good he was as a college football prospect, and that you know, like Watts would always, his father would always put that out of like him being this big prospect. But like, I was never clear as to like, whether he had like legit uh, credentials there or not. The other debut is Scott Ricksteiner, uh, the brother of Rick, mm-hmm. who is getting started. And uh, he has his first match, and the reports are he looked really good for a rookie. He would, of course, have a lot of success um, as uh, Big Papa Pump, amongst other uh, gimmick names. Hulk Hogan gets a soft review coming off his performance on the most recent Saturday night's main event. Quote, Hulk Hogan is out of control. The guy now thinks he's Jesus Christ. It would (laughs) behoove Titan to make sure Hulk doesn't get any more chances to upstage Roddy Piper because I wouldn't want to put all my eggs in the basket of a guy who is starting to believe his hype. Hulk Hogan beat Paul Orndor via DQ in another Hulk ego trip. Do you notice Hulk won't even let his foe have the advantage during a match without a gimmick? i.e. distraction by Hogan. I can't stand either of these guys, but they both did work hard and put on a good match. Um, thank God the uh, Hulkster didn't release his autobiography around this time because uh, <laughs> I think it would not have been... Uh, I think somebody would have died, unfortunately. Um, not, not, not in a homicide, in a uh, you know, self-combustion uh, sense. <laughs> also, if- I'd like to add your voiceover of that to everything we said uh, about Hogan in WCW in 94 <laughs> Yes. So also from Saturday night's main event, uh, Kamala pin Lanny Poffo. Dave writes, Lanny's new haircut makes him look even more. Uh Oh, forget it. (laughs) I hate those 30 year cliffhangers. I really wanted to know what effect Lanny Poffo's new haircut had, but (sighs) I guess we'll have to keep on guessing. Cool. Uh, <laughs> that that might have been it. That might have been it. Um, Don Owen's territory is doing terribly as they did these three big shows. See, but- see, he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Take that, Dylan. <laughs> as they did these three big shows, bringing in the Road Warriors to wrestle Bruiser Brody and Rip. Oliver, plus Nick Bockwinkle, Sergeant Slaughter, Kurt Hennig, and unfortunately they only drew $20,000 in, in Portland, $12,000 in Spokane, and $11,000 in Seattle. Um, so they're in a place where they can't, unfortunately, draw even when they bring in the big outside talent, let alone the, uh, the non-existent local talent. Big news breaks in North Carolina with the car accident that ended uh, Magnum TA's career. Uh, when the news first arrives in the Observer, it's unclear whether uh, what will happen as uh, Magnum's still paralyzed and in critical condition in the hospital. And, I mean, all things considered, obviously, it was a very sad story. But, you know, things turned out better than I think a lot of people would have, you know, expected at the time of the accident. As, you know, it sounds like he was able to sort of get his life together and deal well with, um, you know, with the end of his career, unfortunately. There's always been the talk about the legend. He of- seems, sorry, Todd, to interrupt. But he seemed in really good nick in in every way um on the wf mid-set dvd was the mid-set dvd or there was some dvd recently he appeared on maybe i'm saying the crockett dvd anyway it was something i saw him on recently and he was he was looking well like a guy who just was living a good life so happy to see that 
Yeah, yeah, that's my impression too. And yeah, I think I think it, it might have been the Crockett Days one, a DVD that he uh, appeared on a fair amount. Um, but you know, I'm not sure what was coming to your mind there. Uh, there's always been the talk about the legend of Tom McGee, you know, the bodybuilder who had this one great match with Bret Hart and was thought to be the future of the business. Um, well, the guy didn't get the greatest of reviews in the Observer at the time because Dave does note that the match with Bret. Um, happened and that it was supposed to have stolen the show in Rochester, but at the same time he labels him very stiff, a poor worker, and those in Calgary don't have kind words for his willingness to learn and was considered an ego case. So clearly there were uh, there were red flags even at the time of that match with Brett, um, you know, which sort of speaks to sort of how much you know how much of a, a prospect um, you know he was and whether people you know even immediately sort of saw through Brett carrying him to that great match. We return to the uh, the letters page where a gentleman writes, Never did I realize the power of Hulk Hogan until his, I remember this one now, until his latest sojourn into Pittsburgh. I usually sit front, and this might have been, this might, no, it probably wasn't you, Justin. Um, I, I usually, although maybe you were one of the kids. Um, <laughs> I, I, I usually sit front row behind the barriers where the wrestler's walkway meets the ring. At least 10 kids wanted to sit on the floor behind the barrier in front of me. I didn't mind, and we struck up a conversation about the greatness of Hogan. I played devil's advocate with them, saying Paul Orndorff was the better man, which wasn't difficult to do. The kids all retorted how Orndorff hurt Hogan. I brought up comparisons with Ric Flair, Nikita Koloff, and the Road Warriors, but they all said that Hulk was the best. In the match, Orndorff won via DQ, and Hulk juiced after being hit with a chair. The kids were hysterical. In fact, one poor lad in a wheelchair next to me was in tears. I finally got him to stop crying after I explained to him what's probably going to happen in their rematch next month. He looked at me and realized Hulk will probably beat Orndorff, and his smile could have lit up the arena. Hulk is their idol, like Roberto Clemente was mine. So there you that go. That's amazing. <laughs> a tear to my eye. It's probably, yeah, that's probably Uncle Michael. Um, yeah, the, the protagonists <laughs> of these stories who uh, go to wrestling events, and Dave does it too, where he's like, kids were chanting USA in this match with foreigners. I told him to shut up. <laughs> it's like, I don't think the protagonists of these stories come off as cool and in the know as they think they are. Let me tell you how you play this. Although there is uh, sometimes perilous consequences. So March 2003, uh, 17 years after this story, uh, you relayed back in that self-same Pittsburgh Civic Arena, now sold its name and identity to the Mellon Corporation. It was a SmackDown taping before WrestleMania 19. And uh, word was that Kurt Angle had a broken freaking neck and was just going to drop the uh, title to Brock Lesnar and get out of town. Uh, so that match was booked for SmackDown, and everyone knew it was going to happen. And uh, um, even though Kurt Angle was from Pittsburgh, Brock Lesnar was still being cheered by some children, including my neighbor in the seats to my, uh, who's to say? Probably right. I don't know. And then, uh, so he was like, yeah, Brock Lesnar. I was like, I don't know. I like Kurt Angle. And uh, bear in mind, Kurt Angle, it was known, had <laughs> broken his neck. And was going to drop the title to uh, Brock Lesnar. And was like, who do you think's going to win? And he's like, oh, definitely Brock Lesnar's going to destroy him. He's powerful and strong. And I said, ooh, I don't know. Kurt Angle. I like Kurt Angle because I'm a brash and interesting and unique character. And uh, I don't know. I can't be boxed into corners like you, my young friend. But I'll make you a wager. Hey, 
who's going to win this match between uh, Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar? I'll bet you $3 that Kurt Angle is going to win. And I expected to, you know, be humiliated like any good heel and, like, have a bucket of garbage dumped on my head at the end and then have to stomp my feet and be like, but no! Ah! So we shot that angle at the beginning of the tapings and then they have the match at the end and whoops, Eric Angle sneaks in there and Kurt Angle uh, wins. And I'm like, uh, uh oh! So this kid is scared because now he owes me three dollars, which is more <laughs> than his entire life is worth at that point. <laughs> so I was like Vince at the end of the uh, 2005 Royal Rumble, where I needed to come out and book an impromptu finish somehow, and uh, somehow I took a piece of paper out of my pocket and read it and was like, "I'm reading the fine print here of the contract that I had my attorneys draw up." And uh, instead, uh, what they have here is not Kurt Angle versus uh, Brock Lesnar, some match we bet on, but uh, something else. It was like Rikishi and the FBI or something. And, uh, well, I think I still won that, but let me... Oh, no! You won the $3. So then I paid him off some hush money to uh, not traumatize him so that he didn't think that uh, he was going into indentured servitude. This 300-cent debt that I had accidentally uh, beat him in. In a game of uh, gambling, chance, and will. So that's how you play it, 1986 letter writer. You're not like, oh, I don't know. I think Hogan uh, will probably uh, make a babyface comeback after this heat has been accrued in this wrestling program. Jesus, throwing in like accounting references to really bamboozle them. All right. Last last part of the Observer segment here. Finally, we have a pre-UFC letter uh, about the toughest wrestlers um, that one might argue doesn't hold up so well. So the, uh, <laughs> the writer says... So could this be the first ever eventual wrestling classics message board hallmark of someone asking who would win in a shoot and Dave weighing in? Um, there actually have been sort of... That, that sort of comes from time to time during the Observer at this time, but this mm. is definitely one of those sorts of things. Although it's more like uh, staking, a, a staking a position than asking a question. So the writer says, quote, I found your comments on who is really the toughest wrestler very interesting. I've always thought the measure of how tough someone is would be in terms of street fighting. While you state that wrestlers uh, with amateur backgrounds are in better shape and have more stamina, (laughs) so they would win in a clean wrestling match against someone like the Road Warriors. I don't think stamina is that important because most street fights don't last very long. Usually the stronger stronger and more aggressive man wins, as you stated, while guys like Brad Rankins and Danny Hodge are, were in great shape and are great wrestlers, they are also small. And if they were go- to go against one of the road warriors in a street fight where anything goes, I think one of the road warriors would eat their lunch. Take that, Danny Hodge. I believe in the saying that a good little man never beats a good big man. Years ago, when Bruce Lee movies were popular, some of the guys at work used to argue about who would win in a street fight between Bruce Lee and Bruno Sammartino, who was in his prime that. While Lee was a good little man, I always thought once Bruno, Bruno got a hold of him, it would be all over. And there you go. Well, hard to say in the end who of the two was more correct. It remains ambiguous to this day. Yes. God, and that's a real letter. That reminds me of like the Back to the Future and time travel <laughs> movies where they, you know, they go to the past and then random yahoos are in the 1950s are like, ah, I tell you right now, there'll never be such a thing as the internet. I promise you that. <laughs> and then the main character arches his eyebrows and was like, eh, well, I mean, we'll see, pal. <sighs> 
So that thus concludes the final, not the final observer, but the final observe four. Yes, the final segment. I've still got my stack of uh, observers here that I've been going through. Although uh, since I recorded the last one, I am now into uh, into 1988. So I am long well, I past am, that period. I am proud to say that I was able to uh, be on here for the final ever observe war with Todd Martin and uh, Todd. It was a it was a, a real treat to my audio, my podcast listening over the last couple of years. The uh, the observers were just a, a true delight, and uh, thank you for doing them. Well, thanks, Alan. I got, I'm glad you enjoyed them. And yeah, they were fun. They were fun to do. Thank you again, and thank you. You honor us by putting it here in this uh, landfill, <laughs> metaphorically taping <laughs> in. What a, what a great analogy and a, a very complimentary one. <laughs> Seaweed and spilled motor oil clad the land, rags, tattered clothing, and uh, some uh, cut up uh, aluminum cans that you could prick yourself on if you're not careful. So, all right, I'll see you. No promises. You do not have to commit to come back to uh, finish <laughs> what we started here. Thank you both for being here. I know uh, I keep going back to the court system analogy, and it's like my parents split up, but they both still love me. And I think <laughs> that's what I feel like uh, with this. Well, um, any <laughs> closing sentiments uh, for fuck's sake, Alan? <laughs> Uh, I don't. I don't like the uh, implication that me and Todd have split up in any way. We, uh, he, 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 he moved out, and we're still, we still have the same relationship we always did. But uh, yeah, um, uh, I enjoyed doing this. Felt like felt like normal to me, if you say so. And uh, you, you had a. You need to you need to stop underselling yourself, Shapiro. You're... You know what? Children of divorce and self esteem issues <laughs> is a common thing that's been looked at. <laughs> Take it from me, a man who's had adolescent psychology classes uh, as part of my curriculum. It's in there, and uh, I guess what I'm being now would be classified as oppositional defiance. So I'm sorry about that. Alan, could you plug uh, into the socket? Uh, it's a free show with Matt Forestine about a wrestler. Tell them about it. Although this is weird because it's like, oh, people who have only heard this will find. Oh, but no, we got the Todd draw. So the Todd draw audience, tell the Todd draw audience uh, what you did. Well, Alan. I did this podcast, which is, I'm very pleased to say has gotten rave reviews. Probably, um, by I think one of the more um, appreciated podcasts I've done in a, in a long while. This this breakdown of the career the life and times in wrestling to this point it may continue it's not the end of brian danielson with matt forestine on f4wonline.com it was a free show look it up it's all over my twitter it's um it, if you go into the archives on f4w you'll find it there and it's uh it's a free show, so you should be able to download it whether you're a subscriber or not. But I would encourage, if you are not a subscriber and you enjoy the show, to check out some of the other content on F4WOnline.com, of which I'm sure anyone listening to this is probably already aware. But, um, yeah, and uh, I also write for Fighting Sphere magazine, and uh, I will have a big article in the... Uh, I think it's the next one that's going to come out. Maybe it's the one after... Uh, it might not. Yeah, actually, no. I think it's it's the one coming out next, and uh, it is a article on a subject very near and dear to me. And honestly, when I think about it, I'm shocked I never wrote this article a lot sooner, like years and years ago. It seemed like it would be one of the first things I ever wrote, but 
I never did until now. And uh, yeah, it is uh, something I think came out really well. So I was happy with it. And I'm currently working on a different article, which is also something near and dear to my heart, which will probably be in the final months issue. So Fighting Spirit Magazine, good stuff there for people that like long-form, thought-provoking articles about uh, professional wrestling in across the world. Thank you for your time and service. Todd, one more time for old <laughs> time's sake, would you like uh, a reluctant uh, pushy plugs <laughs> cajoling you <laughs> to ask you to say something? Sure, I... I, 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 I... I, I will I will plug uh, away uh, enthusiastically as I'm I'm trying very hard to plug a lot over the last few weeks. I'm making a, a real Herculean effort. I hope people appreciate uh, as as they grumble at my plugs the the <laughs> difficulty with which I deliver them and with the positive intentions I have of helping others with them. Um, yes, so uh, join pwtorch.com. Uh, very excited about what what uh, I've been doing there thus far. Um, last two weeks, I've gone uh, two hours with Wade uh, Keller both weeks. I think they've been really great conversations. I've been very happy with them. Um, I wasn't sure going in. Um, it, it always sort of takes time to sort of get chemistry with people, so you don't know sort of how the rapport, how, how things are going to work out. But I think things really started off from a great note from the beginning. So there's a lot of really good audio there. All sorts of other stuff on the Torch site. I wrote an article for the newsletter there this week. Um, there's all sorts of, of other emails, uh, Bruce Mitchell, Sean Radican, uh, uh, you know, a whole host of other folks uh, that contribute to the website. So I really encourage people to come check it out. I mean, if you're not familiar with it, um, I think you'll get great value. I'm very I'm – very, um, you know, I'm very confident about that. I think people will enjoy it. So you can go to pwtorch.com uh, slash uh, – well, just go to pwtorch.com and they, they, you can – there's click the link for Go VIP, which uh, gives you the option to subscribe. And as Alan referred to, um, there's a promotion right now, which I did not come up with the terms of. <laughs> uh, he repeated at the beginning. I will repeat it for the sake of, of, of people having familiarity with it. If you type in, I want Todd, again, I did not come up with this <laughs> – you can get $5 off your subscription, which is only um, $10 a month to begin with or cheaper if you want a longer subscription. So please come out, check it out. Um, and yeah, I hope a, a bunch of uh, Observer people uh, will uh, will join and come see what's, uh, what's about. I know people have been messaging me thus far and uh, uh, both that they're trying it out and they've been enjoying it thus far. So that's encouraging. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm uh, happy to, uh, to plug that. And we're excited for this exciting new avenue for you and the offer code i hope that continues although i want to say do not confuse that with the offer code shaps which you can use on my show for the website espn.com <laughs> don't put i want todd on espn.com you would not get all the great features for true sports <laughs> don't put shaps on torch because then a search will return me in that one show i did with Derek bergen and then a system error will occur so observer torch I got my fingers in all the pies. Throw in uh, the code 4L at Sherry's Berries. <laughs> if you want to avail of uh, a discount that won't work. So hey, Justin, what, hey, Justin, can I... Uh, what up, what up, yeah, yeah. Are we, uh, are we, am I getting the uh, the treatment of... Uh, I look up and see my name in lights. What treatment specifically to you are you asking about? Will that song play? Yeah. Yes. Do you want to be the last words on the show that cut right into the song? Uh, only if I say something good. Um. Right now, I'm 
jump for my love. All right. Jump in. <laughs> feel it. my touch. I push stop. Jump you when you want to see the kisses in the night. So it's... jump for my love. <laughs>